well-established teams who racing in, you know, typical road racing stuff come to Pikes Peak. Their experience are a good team. They've won and it shouldn't be too hard. And they come to the mountain, they just have their ass kicked. And it is an endurance event, but it's not like a car running around for 24 hours. It's like a, a physical one and a mental one for each and every person on the team. The altitude just compounds that because it just exhausts you. Welcome to the HPA Tuned In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host, and in this episode, we've got Robin Shute from the Cindy Club joining us. Now, if you haven't heard either of those names before, Robin is now a three-time outright winner of the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, and he just finished cleaning up the competition overall in the 2022 running, which also happens to be the 100th running of this hill climb. Now, that in and of itself may not be particularly special. Obviously, every year someone wins the hill climb, and we've had some pretty big-name competitors take out that trophy, including the likes of Sebastian Loeb, backed by Peugeot. We've also had, more recently, uh, Romain Dumas take out the overall record with the Volkswagen IDR electric hill climb car. The difference though is Robin and the Cindy Club are are not working with an unlimited checkbook. Essentially this is a group of enthusiasts, albeit some really smart enthusiasts, who have built and then developed this car over a number of seasons to make it an absolute rocket ship. So this is a very wide ranging discussion with Robin about his background in motorsport and learning the craft of race driving. We also talk about simulators and their place in motorsport in general as well as specifically Pikes Peak. Then we dive deep into the development of the Wolf chassis that he's running, the changes that he made from the original 250 horsepower naturally aspirated car to what is now 600-650 horsepower with around about 2 tonnes of downforce. Also of course diving into the complexities of developing a competitive package for such a unique event given the altitude at Pikes Peak. On top of this we then dive into his running this year 2022 where the race day conditions were absolutely abysmal with almost zero visibility, rain, snow, fog, you name it, he still came out and triumphed. Now before we get into our chat with Robin, for those who are fresh to the Tuned In podcast, High Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people all manner of performance automotive topics. Now relevant of course to today's topic is race driving and we do have our race driving fundamentals course which is perfect for anyone out there who's maybe interested in getting involved in track days, maybe you're interested in starting competitive racing at club level or maybe you're already racing and you're struggling to find that next step in terms of reducing your lap times. I guarantee this course has something for you almost irrespective of your skill level. Uh, You can check that out at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. We will also put a link to that course in the show notes and as a listener of the podcast you can use the coupon code podcast75 that'll get you $75 off your very first HPA course purchase again link in the description all right enough with that introduction let's get into our chat all right welcome to the podcast Robin great to have you along fresh off uh, I think your third back-to-back win at Pikes Peak is that is that correct third in a row yeah hello all yes um it is the third one actually I did skip 
2020's race. Um, so it's, it's the back-to-backs for me, but over on the event, I did, uh, you know, those goals one in 19 and then 21 and 22. Okay. Either way, uh, you can't be too disappointed winning every time you turn up. I, I don't imagine too many people can say that they've done that. Uh, before we get into Pikes Peak and particularly the car that you've developed and your racing, let, let's get a little bit of a background history on on who you are and where you've come from. Obviously, uh, the accent gives it away a little bit uh, British, but uh, tell us how, how you sort of grew up getting involved in cars and particularly uh, racing cars. Um, I would say it's, it was pretty much inevitable. Um, my father's hill climbed all my life back in the UK. He was a uh, quite a prominent engineer at uh, Lotus Cars and and part of that he was able to borrow uh, Elise's and uh, the 340R at the weekends to go hill climbing around in the UK so Shelsley Walsh Prescott places like that so I've known hill climbing as as long as I can remember and um, my dad actually still hill climbs more than me Um, so it's very much in the family as a kid, I'm just fascinated by mechanical things and, and engineering's always has been kind of my natural path. So I started really racing uh, RC cars at about age seven, eight. And and I ended up kind of racing that nationally as a child and did pretty well in that. I think it was the Kyosho World Cup. Um, and so that, that gave me a feel for you know, competing, um, setting up a car and um, being sort of mechanically uh, capable. So from there, I did a bit of karting, not a whole load, just clubby uh, junior Rotax when that really first got going. And yeah, I kind of went to school for engineering, um, specialized in automotive engineering. Actually, I could do that in the UK. And um, I didn't continue with motorsport too much, actually. I went into alpine ski racing as like a 17-year-old and carried on with that um not nowhere near as talented as, as i am on cars but enjoyed that all the way through university it was only when i came back to the, or went to the states to work for tesla motors california that i was i kind of had a corvette and took it on track days and kind of got the bug again for motorsport so that was sort of my early motorsport career okay a bunch of stuff to unpack there just just real briefly i mean i i had a a brief stint with rc cars back in the day didn't really get too deep into them obviously nothing at the level you've done it, just i'm interested because obviously it is a, a cheap segue into to motorsport albeit in a slightly different angle does the the setup and the adjustability on some of the more high-end rc cars actually help you learn how these changes relate on a, on a real car yeah, I'd say actually the low end stuff, you know, as long as you have some adjustability in the car, it carries over. You know, I was seven years old playing with spring rates, anti roll bars and gear ratios, all that good stuff. It was perfect. It was a perfect little entry into it. And I was very lucky that my father could was also knew what he was doing with that stuff, so he could explain what was going on with each. So yeah, it was it was it was a great first step into that into motorsport. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I'm also a little bit off off topic, but you just mentioned uh Tesla and are you, is that something you're still involved with Tesla on the day-to-day? Uh, and if so, what's your sort of uh, role or uh, responsibilities at Tesla? Um, no longer at Tesla. I left there a while ago now, probably about 2016, I believe. Um, but I did bounce around a few EV startups. And from Tesla, I went to a startup called Faraday Future. Um, and that was actually where I got my first run at Pikes Peak. And 
well, pretty much all the members of the Sendy Club come from Faraday Future. So it was that EV startup world is um, really got me going at Pikes Peak. So it's pretty significant. Nowadays, I'm I was working on robo race vehicles the last year or so, and and now I'm I'm uh, freelancing, consulting, and and pulling together motorsport programs for people. Okay, so it, it sounds like you've got a probably a wider and more rounded knowledge across the whole uh, race and automotive scene than than maybe just being a race driver. Fair to say? Yeah, actually, like the the race driving thing, I'm probably the lightest on experience with. Uh, been very lucky that i've i've had like a weird motorsport career development in that i haven't skipped anything at all you know i grew up did a bit of karting knew how to set up cars i know and i've been kind of racing most years of my life but it was never you know going to the national karting championship and then formula ford formula three two one none of that but i did get the experience so i I think like if you look at my driving skill development it's, it's not missing anything uh, and in later life, I've done a lot of simulator work and, and I'm able to use that to improve my driving without loads of seat time. So something I'm very good at is, is being quick in a car without any seat time in it. Um, and I think hill climb and pike speak is, is somewhere where you, you really need that skill and talent. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we'll get into this in a little little bit more detail, but uh, obviously, re- regardless of the form of motorsport, seat time is expensive. You're, you're, you're consuming parts on the car burning fuel, tyres, etc. It's inevitably expensive, not to mention the the, the risk of of something going wrong and you having an accident. So the simulator, obviously across all motorsport, has become more prevalent. But yeah, definitely Pikes Peak being such a unique event where you really get that one crack at it, uh, understanding those 156 corners must be absolutely critical. Just just taking a step back, I mean, karting obviously is is the mainstay sort of path for those who who want to make it as a career in in motorsport, and that these days is becoming increasingly difficult and increasingly expensive to actually get to a point where uh, you, you're a paid driver and and that's your sole responsibility, and you can make a, a somewhat decent living from it. Is that something you aspired to at the start of your your experience in motorsport, or was it never really your your um goal? I I did aspire to it. Um, I was exposed to it, but it was never really an option for me. So yeah, it's. I, I think nowadays that we actually have a few more choices for for career development within motorsport, which is actually a, a really good thing. It was always interesting watching which kids could go from karting into cars successfully, because great carters would struggle in cars. It's a very different technique and, and discipline in the way. When you're getting a lot of seat time in cars, typically kids would be pulled out of school to, to go practice all week round in the UK, at least that's how it was when I was there. So you get so well rehearsed and so, uh, so good at that particular skill in karting that that wouldn't always translate into cars. So I don't think it was always a good thing to, to, to be fully focused on karting. You need, you need it to you know to develop the neural pathways of controlling a vehicle and and stuff at high speed. You need it just for the sense of competition and you know being you know an athlete, an individual athlete being able to maximise your performance. But in terms of skill and technique of controlling a car, it isn't it isn't the everything? And I think you can you can get a lot out of simulators. You can get a lot out of other forms of just driving vehicles. You know, like bouncing around your back garden in a in a side by side or something like that. All, all that stuff I think is is valid and you look at some some athletes now sim racing 
you can get very competitive race drives out of sim racing and also people like you know travis pastrana who who was never really on that that traditional career path through carts and cars but is very competitive in the vehicle so i do think there's a lot of different ways you can go about being a very well-rounded driver it's unfortunately like this fia pathway of single seaters and and sports cars that is just kind of restricted the imagination of most people and actually when when you look at you know where it is now it's especially in europe now i think it's it's to a fault and you're getting the same kind of drivers where, where back in the day you, you were just getting i think uh maybe more rounded guys who was sure. who just raced everything because you could back then whereas now it's too expensive so you have to focus on one thing on that vein I mean, the way I see it these days with the expensive motorsport at that level, natural talent, obviously, or talent of the driver, natural or otherwise, which we'll get into, is definitely a core aspect. I mean, you're not going to make it if, if you can't get the car around the track quickly. But at the same time, to get noticed, to get seat time, to get exposure and to move up the ranks requires cold hard cash and and generally lots of it so what i'm sort of seeing from the sidelines is a a lot of drivers now that that are at their upper echelon you've sort of got those who have got that raw talent uh and and are just naturally very very quick no matter what you put them in and then maybe some drivers that maybe have got where they've got to and no doubt they're still very very fast but because uh there's a big checkbook backing them uh, and and I think that's making it harder for some potentially more talented drivers without that financial backing to actually get the exposure and get seen. Do you think there's there's something to that? I, I don't see a solution to it if that if that's the problem. However, yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's always been there. Let's let's be honest. That was the case back in the nineties, eighties, seventies, sixties. What you had back then, you know, in the early days, was you had to really want it because you. We're putting your life on the line to go and do it, and that's that's uh, although a very small factor now, still a factor. It's definitely not a dominant one. As you go up the, you know the the ranks, at least you get less and less seat time. Maybe Formula One's a little different, but typically you're, you're driving less and less. So I still think there's an opportunity for talent to come through where you're you're not over practiced and over rehearsed, and you can you can be a, a good driver just by being plugged into a new car and going quick. I mean everything's kind of coming to a point now where everyone is so good. You know, you look at the Formula One grid now, everyone is really good. Even the bad guys, they're fantastic. And it's just those last little bits. It's the, it's the little things that make the difference between being, you know, almost mediocre versus great. You know, the very small things, making good choices in tire strategy or knowing when to push, knowing when to not. Very subtle stuff that, that makes the difference between world champions and people who never podium. So, you know, that becomes very hard to differentiate the good choices versus a, a very competitive program to, to, to come along with. You look at the, the lower formula, like the two Formula 3, you have to put yourself in a position to, to succeed to be able to go and win there. So you need the talent. And I think like talent versus, you know, raw talent versus developed talent is a very inter- interesting topic by itself. Well, that, that's actually something I'd like to dive into. I, I kind of had that on my on my list. We, we always hear people talk about drivers who are naturally gifted or naturally talented. And I believe there is some element of that. I've seen people who can jump in a car for the first time and go out and be lapping within a tenth or maybe even faster than the owner that's done 500 laps of their home track. So there's that element of just a natural tendency to understand what the car needs, how to position it, how to control it versus someone who maybe doesn't get 
I don't know if you get born with that skill, but let's say yeah, someone who who naturally inherits that sort of skill set and understanding versus uh, learning it. So the question there is, can someone who doesn't have that natural gift to be fast in a car become equally as good with hard work and practice? I think yes. That's that's my like my simple answer. Um, and the reason being, I think like, these naturally talented guys, they come on, and girls, sorry, come about uh, from a young age, they've just been exposed to the right feelings and they, they get a knack for it early. And and then that just continues to develop. And I think it's, you know, that it's almost the way your brain works and the way you understand what's going on around you and you can go and then repeat that. So I'm sure there's natural talents around, you know, like you have faster neurons or, you know, how your, how your body sets up, it does a little better. But I don't think that's, the key um you can kind of look at that with drivers and aging um the best drivers are able to keep keep on going into the later years lewis hamilton fernando alonso their raw pace i think suffers as their body ages but their experience of knowing exactly what to do takes over and keeps them competitive whereas other drivers start fading um sure. i think there's a bit of it it's just like physical and a bit of, it of you know that that drive and want and desire to continue to be competitive and to do that you need to continue to stress your body and improve it so I think, you know, when it comes back to can you can you gain natural talent, I think you can. And I think part of that is almost like cross-training. So doing a lot of different driving and, and doing a lot of different things, aside from it, mountain biking, all this good stuff. Just just really kind of like imagine yourself as a computer. You're programming yourself with lots of different experiences and, and you can go and develop that natural talent. Uh, I, I think that the biggest limitation is almost attitude or approach to it is you've got to be willing to put in the work to go and create yourself some talent there. I mean, the, the old story, you know, regardless of what you want to be good at is 10,000 hours of experience to, to reach expert level. And, you know, no big surprises that goes for race driving just as much as anything else you want to do in your life. So yeah, the hard yards, but unfortunately that 10,000 hours of, uh, of seat time come, comes at a price. Let's move on towards Pikes Peak, uh, hill climb in general, but Pikes Peak specifically. It's a very unique form of motorsport. How? What? What sort of drew you to that? Was this your your dad's sort of passion for hill climbing, and you just took it to the the biggest extreme there is in the world of hill climbing? <laughs> um, you could say that. Uh, I wouldn't say that's actually how I got into it, but I always knew about the event. And I think that's that shows you my bringing with my dad is that I was I was aware of it from a very young age, and I think that came from him rallying previously, him loving Audi Quattros, and you know the Audi Quattro was a very iconic car in the late eighties there, and then also being exposed to the Gran Turismo two with the Escudo Pikes Peak, and then a little snippet of that, and and then all the you know the um, I guess it's Climb Dance with Ari Vatanen and just these little clips. This is inspiring, isn't it? You, that that kind yeah. of those kind of photos videos just capture your attention so i've always been aware of it and i've always known that's that's kind of the ultimate of hill climb just you can see it right there you race to the top of a fourteen thousand foot mountain it's it's it, it, it's kind of obvious that's the ultimate so always been aware of it because it's been gravel all that while i never and i'm now starting to turn to a bit of a gravel guy but nowhere near that um i was i was you know doing pavement stuff all my life I never really thought I'd get the chance of doing it and it slowly became pavement and then realized I think it was back in 14, 2014, it was again I could take my Pro Mazda up the mountain there and I was looking at the rule set and things like that. So it, it started to become something that I wanted to go and do, mainly for a challenge in America as well. Like it's one of the 
the big challenge you can do in America, I think, motorsport-wise. So that's really neat. And, and I guess I didn't, when I first looked at it, I didn't understand why more people weren't doing it because, you know, the rules are very, very open and, and you could kind of take any vehicle up there and go and race it. So back then it was just the logistical challenge of getting there and running the race that was tough. You know, it was a three-person team at that point and I don't think that would have been possible with that car. But yeah, it's, it's something I've always been aware of and, and knowing that, you know, it's the most extreme of cars and the most extreme of tracks is it's just awesome. Now, you just mentioned the, the rule book, which, oh, and obviously th- there are different classes and, and the rules for some classes are quite specific, but at, at least in the unlimited class that, that you're competing in, the rule book, last time I looked through it, uh, to paraphrase, as long as you had four wheels, you're good to go. Is, is that about the extent of, of your limitations? Pretty much, yeah. There's some safety rules in there as well for cage and and you know driver kit and things like that. But all good rules to have, uh, um, and and pretty straightforward. There was one rule that was interesting that wasn't unlimited that actually affected us this year a little bit. Um, was grooving slick tires? There was a rule in there saying you couldn't do that, and they they have since changed that this this year. That was a live a live rule change that happened. As wet tire supply turns out to be a global supply issue as well, so people <laughs> need to groove slicks to to be able to. Have so that was changed as a safety element because of the conditions. Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of thing of you know you want groove tires to be grooved safely to manufacture a spec, which is what the rules now say. But they were they were trying to just avoid any any opportunity for somebody grooving them wrong by basically outlawing it. But it's more safe to have a hand cut slick in the wet than just a slick in the wet. So I think that was that was good. They they changed the rules for that. So common sense prevailed on the day. Exactly. All right, so what, one of the problems I see with such an open rulebook is when when you've got no limits, what direction do you go in? And and it's very easy to sort of go down a path that maybe in hindsight, once you've developed it and, and spent a huge amount of time and money on it, uh, maybe wasn't the best. So what, what was your sort of thought process a, around choosing a car or was it a case of you had the chassis and thought, well, hey, we've got this, let, let's go? Uh, yeah, no, it was a pretty methodical process. I come from, you know, a, a family that that was very much in, uh, you know, into Lotus and Colin Chapman's "Keep Everything Simple and Light" it has always been my mantra and way. Um, and my experience was also in in open wheel downforce cars as well, so it leaned in on that. You could see at the time Romain Dumas was running a Norma competitively, and he'd won. He's won three times at the mountain with that Norma program and then the fourth time was in the IDR of course um, afterwards which is still a Norma underneath that's a Norma chassis oh, I didn't actually realise that yeah same he sold his he sold his tubs to Volkswagen to, to develop the IDR basically so he's he's now carless uh, <laughs> so he, that's why it's one of the reasons why he doesn't come back so yeah we, we kind of knew that my skill and expertise suits this new paved era of Pikes Peak and uh, at that time there's the the Normans Wolves uh, a CN2 FIA CN2 class car that was just becoming obsolete so there was a lot of cars on the, on the used market at good prices and it was a great base to go to go racing with the CN2 class was basically a Honda K20 two-seater sports racer um, with spec engines 250 horsepower and good downforce I picked the Wolf for the simple reason that the the tub was kind of laid out like a single seater. So most other cars had a, a front clip that bolted over the tub, whereas the Wolf had uh, a tub 
by itself and then extra fenders stuck on the side. So and that allowed us to go and pull those fenders off and then kind of run the front uh, open wheel, basically. I, I call the car almost like a mullet car. You know, you've got the business in the front party on the back um, sort of deal. And and that was there just to allow us to run big tires in, in the car um, and then also give us some freedom around front wings. And so how we go and make downforce in the front end of the car and also save weight because that, that was the okay. first focus for us was, was just keeping the car light. Yeah, makes sense. We'll, we'll talk about the car in, in a lot more detail, but before we, we get into it, when, when you first started developing the car and decided you're going to go run Pikes Peak, was there an expectation of an outright win or was the car essentially yeah. faster than you expected? No, we always went there to go win. And even when the Volkswagen program was announced, I think it took everyone by surprise how fast that program was. But that year was, it was one of the strongest entries ever. We had Simone Fagioli in his European hill climb winning Norma with extra bells and whistles on it. And you had the IDR, which wasn't really, you know, when they announced that program, they were just aiming for the electric record, which wasn't that fast. And then you had us kind of turning up, trying to pull something together. We had no expectations to go and win but we were we were going to win um, knowing it would be hard and it would take us probably a couple of years to go and achieve that goal but we we essentially knew what the winning formula was with Romain Dumas's normal program and actually continued with his exact engines that year and with with the goal of making something you know, faster than faster than him yeah okay yeah so you've, you've got a, a proven uh package a proven recipe essentially just uh take it that little bit further drive it properly drive it fast and um you were within reason somewhat guaranteed at least of a, of a good result now in, in terms of training for pike's peak well actually let, let's take a step back from that and and i i would imagine that everyone listening in this they've been to pike's peak has no clue about how hectic and how wild uh running a car for Pikes Peak is in terms of the practice and then actual race day and and the problem with Pikes Peak is that un- other than the Sunday the race day uh, the the mountain is open it's a, a toll road so you can drive to the top and they open it to the public every day it's, it's only closed for the race day so as a competitor during the practice days you're talking about what a three or four a.m. start. From memory, you had to be on the mountain at five a.m. and basically, as soon as the sun's up, you got your your practice runs, and then eight thirty sort of packed down because the mountain's open at nine a.m. Is that my recollection correct? It's a few years since I've been. Yeah, yeah, pretty much spot on. Yeah, I think you would. Yeah, practice finishes at eight thirty a.m. Uh, so the last car goes up, and then you got to be packed off and, and going at nine, and the. So you go and run these sections, and once you're done, you turn back down and roll down the road. And so your last run of the day, you'll be rolling down the road, tourists going the other way, school buses, RVs, anything. So it's like an odd experience of being, you know, one of the fastest cars in the world, and just tourists driving the other way, no clue what what this thing is. In terms of this as well, because you've obviously got a, a huge number of competitors, everyone needs to to get practice runs in, and. You know, depending obviously how fast the car is, a full run up the the mountain might be you know sort of ten minutes plus. Uh, so, in order to to make it practical, they actually split the mountain into three sections, and you sort of rotate, correct? So you sort of set up in groups. That's it. Yeah. So you, you, they split the mountain into three. You got the lower section, which is actually two sections combined, which is the qualifying section, 
Um, and then you've got the midsection, which is the, the W's, the infamous switchbacks. And then the last section, top section, is is kind of like a, a, a dual-natured beast of first being incredibly fast and flowing, some really fun turns, but also some like very high stakes and and you're well into the aero realm and, and there's often winds blowing in all different directions, so very hard to judge what your car can do. And the last bit is just some long, bumpy drags and tough corners to go through up to the finish line. So, yeah. Let's talk about those bumps because, again, what I'm trying to do is fill in the picture here for the 99.9% of people listening who, who haven't been there. And when they paved Pikes Peak, for, I've, I've talked to someone about this, I can't remember who it was, I think it was an official, and essentially when they paved that top section of Pikes Peak, you're at altitude, the, the peak obviously 14,000 feet, uh, and even in the middle of summer, which it's just been, you, you've still got snow on the ground around you, and essentially you're not really supposed to pave road at that sort of altitude because you get the snow melt, the, the, the water then runs underneath the tarmac and then overnight it freezes, and when it freezes obviously water expands, so you get this sort of upheave of the tarmac, so just after they lay it, perfectly smooth like a billiard table and then as time goes on you get these bumps and I mean I've seen video on your Instagram uh, of this car just about getting airborne over these bumps so must be incredibly difficult to control the car at that sort of speed over those bumps. Yeah it's uh, compare it to imagine downhill mountain biking through a rock garden that's that's like a similar experience yeah it's tough you've got to pick your line and it changes the they repaved the mountain in in places this year and it was uh, it was it was a bit better and then as the week went on it got rougher again it got bumpier <laughs> and you saw several competitors blow through a turn called cog cut these are all abs cars and uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the, the ice mode that abs can get into and it, when it basically gets confused as to what, how fast the car is going um and everything's locked up it will just bleed off all the all the brake pressure and then you're just sailing <laughs> off into <laughs> into as it turns out a railway track one of the cars managed to actually hit the rails off the cog railway so yeah you don't get anywhere else in the world i don't think anything that harsh what helps us i mean that my car's very stiff because of all the downforce you know there's it's making like we're probably making two tons of downforce at top speed on the mountain two metric tons so cars sprung stiff but that downforce also helps keep the car on the ground so yeah, you're basically pulling negative. The belts are pulling you into the car onto the ground when you go over the bumps. So you're pulling negative G's, but you're, you're the downforce just keeping the car down. So it's stiff, it's uncomfortable, but it actually does quite well and keeps the tires down. I was I was following Ramley Post in in the uh, Tesla Plaid, and that they just didn't get the rear suspension right, and even rolling down the hill the back end of the car would buck about half a foot in the air over some of the bumps. So that's the car, you know, that's heavy, so there's momentum behind it. The aero package is nowhere near as potent compared to the car's weight and it didn't quite get the the damping right and the thing and yeah, you've got a car that's taken off. Yeah, last thing you last thing you want. All right, so coming coming back to practice, we've just sort of talked about the fact that it's split into three. So so literally the only time you get to put all three sections of that mountain together is on the Sunday of race day. And even leading up to it, your your, your testing is uh, somewhat limited. And we'll talk about the fact that yours was a bit more limited than it should have been due to some issues. What what are you doing there in order to build your experience and start to memorise the the track? Are, are you focusing on simulator work to to improve or vi- onboard video or a combination? 
So first of all, actually splitting up into three really helps learn the course because you do it in bite size. So that is super helpful. The biggest issue is you actually end up not ever driving some of the turns because between the sections, you need a space to slow down, turn around and wait to come back down the mountain, the same little start line. So there are turns we never do until race day. Um, they're around basically some fast sweepers before Glen Cove and then the uh, basically a uh, left-hand sweeper around Devil's Playground. So you get into that just like a rally stage on race day. For me now, being experienced, just a little bit of onboard just to refresh your brain of of all the landmarks and what to expect and just try and you know dig out in your memory that the rhythm you had previously. Simulator's really good as well just to create that mind map of when to expect each turn. I think any any there's no excuse as a rookie to turn up to the mountain not knowing where the next turn is going to roughly be because you with with footage with simulator you can you can be ready to anticipate each turn as it comes along. The other thing that's really useful with a simulator is understanding where to find time, um, and that's both as a driver and as as like how how you set up a car and and what you focus on in terms of performance upgrades on a car. The simulator is great to go and try stuff out, crash and and see what what does and doesn't work um so i use that a lot actually to to understand performance sensitivities and um maybe where i look for time in real life okay. basically see if, see if that adds up in terms of software for simulation the, there's a, a a couple that i'm aware of that have pikes peak uh, as as a, a track what are you using um i'd always recommend to people use the dirt rally when you're first learning the course uh, because they also split up the course into three so it's just bite-sized manageable so you can start to create that mind map the track isn't accurate the car physics and the tarmac are terrible um, so it's not that much more useful from that once you kind of figure out what all the turns are then there is a, a good build with a set of course i think it's called the syntrax download you you'd go and get and actually that's they've done a really good job of using um, I don't know what they use GPS data or something like that to to pretty accurately model the course and yeah there are a couple of turns that aren't quite right but overall that that will get you there. Okay, all right, let's jump into this car in a bit more detail. So you, you've already mentioned it, it's it's a Wolf chassis, obviously modified. You've got the K20 as the as the stock engine, but uh, 250 horsepower naturally aspirated, obviously was was never going to cut it. So we'll we'll talk about how you fix that. But for a start. You've kind of dived into this maybe a little bit, but pros and cons of of that as a starting point, and and, and you know anything that's sort of limiting you compared to the likes of uh, Remain in the IDR electric power, maybe notwithstanding. Yeah, electric power notwithstanding. Um, yeah. So what's a fantastic car? It's a light tub, some really nicely engineered pieces on there. The chassis I have is actually their first car they made, so they've you know their latest up is even better. Some of the stuff they carry over to that new car, the uprights, for instance, just beautifully fabricated pieces that are light, stiff, and and hold power levels that you know, don't, weren't originally designed for. So, so great bits of engineering on there. And I was actually got to chat with Romain about you know my car last year, twenty twenty one, and and I think actually the Wolf would be a better car choice than the Norma, to be honest. Okay. The the Norma, I think as you know, it is, it's still a good choice, but it, it when you want to go extreme with Pikes Peak and it's that lightweight, and the other thing you're dealing with is rear-wheel drive as well, and that's and that's a really interesting topic in itself. And my stance, as you can see, is rear-wheel drive is faster than all-wheel drive for the simple fact that you save the weight of the drivetrain. It's about 70 kilo you'd have to put into the car to make 
my car all wheel drive. And where it would help is actually through the mid speed turns where you're rolling on the throttle early. And you can you can use diffs and vehicle setup to also make that pretty good with rear wheel drive, also downforce. And there's a reason why 911s are very fast up there because they're fantastic traction with that rear mass distribution. And that's what we've also focused on in this car is like, yes, rear wheel drive is quick, but you need to carry a lot of weight in the rear to give you the traction. And then you're also relying on the downforce heavily to go and do that. So I think our mass distribution is about 38.62 at the moment. It has been a little more rearward than that sometimes as well. We've come a little forward. But you need those two combinations to, for the car to be quick. So you're you're getting the mass benefit. Uh, mass sensitivity on my car is about uh, 0.2 of a second per kilo. That's significant. Yeah. Yeah, okay. for the total race run, you know, so eight, eight and a half minute race run, eight minutes around that point. Yeah, it's, it's just a great rule of thumb. So, I mean, if you're talking 70 kgs for a conversion to four wheel drive, that's a significant deficit in terms of the weight alone that you're going to need to be making up for with improved acceleration. I, I'm, I'm assuming you, you mentioned downforce, which obviously makes, makes sense. W- one area that... I'd assume the downforce is less of an advantage to you through that that W section, sort of about halfway up the run. You've got, again, for those who aren't aware, a a section of really tight sort of hairpin switchbacks and it just sort of seems to go forever. And and I'm guessing at that point that the actual vehicle speed is so low as to render the downforce much more, much less significant. No, I don't think so. You've got, yeah, it's still good. So, I mean, if I pulled the wings off my car, it'd be traction limited at about 140 mile an hour. So you need the wings to put the power down fundamentally. And then you've got braking zones. Wings you can brake so much later with. And then also things like tires, you need to keep the heat in them. So you need the download and the engine to the car to make these big sticky tires work through those hairpins. Sure. Um, you are right. It is less important than, say, the fast sweepers and some other areas, but it still makes a significant difference. I think you need enough power between the w's but actually what's more important is coming off the turn very very quickly so traction and response off of the turn and the ability to roll speed through the turn that's that's what gives you the time on the middle section because you're you know the straightest doesn't really matter if you did 10 mile an hour fast or slower they're so short you're not gaining much time to it but three mile an hour roll through the apex of a turn you know where you're around 25 mile an hour it's a big chunk of time and then the other key thing is like getting the turbo switched on and the car coming off the turn quickly. So it's the, you know, the lag aspect of it and, and just getting the car on cam. That's, that's a big part of it. All right, let's talk about that engine combination. And again, to reiterate, you know, 250 horsepower naturally aspirated in, in the stock Wolf. You, you've obviously got a turbo engine in there now. Uh, what, what, is the engine combination what what needed to be changed and what is the turbo you're running so the the engine we have is a is a pretty built engine ductile iron sleeves um cnc heads slightly ratio cam but not a crazy cam so drag cartel 3.2 um we took quite a lot of time to make sure our exhaust cam timing is correct as well as uh, you know the vtec on the intake cam we can use we're still using vtec as well so we can idle the car and not foul the plugs which is actually important when you're at altitude. You just need a dependable platform. Pistons, rods, stock crank. Um, we've got a dry sump system on it that came from the from the NA car. Um, I think that's most of what we've got in the engine. We've got the nice Honda Racing magnesium cam cover. It's got to be worth three horsepower or something. It, look, it looks um, better. 
It does look so much. Actually, it stops the stock uh, valve covers rub the bodywork, so it does does help us there. Actually, the space is quite tight there. So the engine's built. Nothing crazy exotic. Everything you can kind of buy out of catalogs. At, at the end of the day, the the K series is such a well proven engine, even in stock form. There's not massive weaknesses, and, and let's be honest, you're not shooting for. 1200 horsepower out of this thing either I mean from what I understand we'll talk about it your, your power aims with it are, are relatively modest correct? Exactly yeah yeah we're about I think on the mountain probably about 600 at the start and 500 by the end so yeah it's it's reasonably comfortable we're pushing that engine hard it's always above 7 grand it's sequential paddle shift and all that so that's that's where it is tough and that's where you don't see the numbers like drag racing with it but we're about, I would say, at the limit. We could probably get another fifty, hundred horsepower out of it, and that's probably it before it being, you know, a, really a consumable item. Yeah. Other stuff on the car got in canal headers, downpipe on the car, which is great for toughness, for the heat and anti lag, and and also lightweight. And then we've got a pretty trick cooling setup, air to air intercooler from PWR as well so all that stuff's very race car um and then the the turbo we've, we've actually had three different turbos on the car over the program and this has been the first year where we've kept the turbo from the previous year so first year we went we used the garrett g25 660 and that was actually really good for the first year gave us maybe like 420 horsepower these are all flywheel horsepower not wheel horsepower um sure at the top and probably 350 by the end and that was that was great for our first year learning the car and it was quick even with that next year we went to the uh Borgwarn at efr turbos they're really nice you can get the twin scroll manifolds they have the the blow valve integrated into them and also the aluminium housing so all really nice features um we're also using the internal wastegated turbine housing and then we use an electronic actuator on that which seems still to be the best way i think to control boost um the new turbo smart stuff comes with it's some headaches around getting that to work nicely uh, you've got to keep that out of heat a little more sure. um, and you can see ken block had issues with that this year um whereas we're using a, an oem honda wastegate actuator from the civic type r and that's is a consumable we replace those each year um, because of the heat uh, around them but um they do a great job and we're able to map some stuff around the you know throttle pedal boost targets that makes it an incredibly drivable car so we used the efr 84 74 in 19 that was actually slightly too big a turbo for us we struggled a bit with quite a lot with lag on that but once it was making power that thing was an absolute rocket i think we got 156 mile an hour on picnic ground for that car so i think it's the highest top speed recorded on pike's peak wow. um yeah it's in the straight line it's, it's pretty good and then we we actually debuted a new turbo with Borgwana, which was the 8370 uh, uh, last year so we had that before that came out for the public and that's that's the goldilocks of turbos for this engine package right now um we went from vpq16 to their x85 ethanol which was also a really smart move and, and that picked us up a little bit of power at the same point so we were about i think similar power numbers in the end with that slightly smaller turbo i'll just stop you there robin and i just want to unpack a a few of those things that you've just mentioned there and and first of all just in relation to turbo sizing uh pike's peak's just such an unusual beast in in terms of the the altitude and the barometric pressure which comes with that altitude and the, the tricky part for that is with turbo sizing 
what's going to work really well at, at sea level with 100 kPa atmospheric pressure. When you're pushing the turbo, it's important to understand the turbo doesn't really care about the boost pressure in the inlet manifold. What, what the compressor cares about is the pressure ratio, which is the outlet pressure divided by the inlet pressure. Inlet pressure is typically going to be at or very close to barometric. So what that means is that to get the same manifold pressure in your engine that you've got at sea level, you're pushing that turbo very, very hard. So if you've got a turbo that's well sized at sea level for, you know, let's say a 600 horsepower K20, you take that to altitude at Pike's Peak, it just is not going to work. You're going to be pushing that turbo probably past its critical speed and, and seeing failures. So generally, it, it, it's sort of what I saw when I was there a couple of years you've got to step up a size of turbo really to make it work on the mountain is, is that but obviously then you've got that trade-off of of lag as well so is this sort of the journey you were going through with turbo sizing and changes um that was the first thought and actually it doesn't turn out quite like that what is most critical actually is the compressor inlet size you, you've got to, to size a turbo for pike speak it's goldilocks it can't be too big can't be too small and that really is dictated by the volumetric efficiency of your engine so there is a, sw- a sweet size for for each engine and yeah you can use anti-lag and go for slightly bigger but i like to try and at least have the turbo well match the engine and then you, you add these gizmos on top of it to get a little more performance so so down at sea level you get a lot of motorsport where with turbos we run restrictors um and that's a very different way to to tune a car set up and set all things up when you have that restrictor size and you, you basically end up making peak power low down and then tapering that boost as you go up in the rpm range and what you essentially end up having at pike's peak is uh the compressor inlet size being a natural restrictor that's the the sonic speed of the air going into that is what t- dictates your power level any sort of volumetrically efficient rate engine, you, you'll never struggle with pressure ratio. You'll only ever struggle with that sonic speed. Okay. Um, so one of the things we also discovered as well is actually air filter makes a huge difference because that, that intake pressure amount, if you have any restriction going in there, you end up changing, you know, reducing the sonic speed, so reducing the amount of flow that can go in. So a small air filter versus a big air filter can rob you 50 horsepower or a dirty air filter versus a clean one. So things that are incredibly important that people I don't see paying much attention to that make a big, big difference to turbo RPM speed. So you're always up against this, this RPM issue. Um, and we, we're seeing, you know, our, our turbo off the start line, we're not quite tapering boost at the higher RPM range. But then from there, we start tapering boost down as, as the revs go up. So we up boost in the mid-range to, to keep the manifold the same, but then we have to taper to keep the, the RPM speed in control. Sorry, just to, to clear, be clear on that, you, are you talking tapering the ter- the boost to control turbo speed at higher RPM in the engine, or are you also tapering boost to control the turbine speed as you go up the mountain relative to barometric pressure? Just, sorry, just to get that clear. Yeah, it's, it's both. So, so we have to, as you go up the mountain and barometric drops, you have to then taper the boost at higher RPMs more because you're essentially your choke speed or choke volume you know volume going through the turbo reduces so that's on a compressor map it's the compressor map is only for one barometric pressure and it and then if you were to go and go on borg warner's matchbot and this will show you you can go and put in the altitude and actually there is a, a a scale factor as the 
altitude goes up, barometric reduces, and so your 80 pounds a minute isn't 800 horsepower anymore. 80 pounds a minute is actually 60 pounds a minute or something like that. So that you, what you got to remember is that that compressed map you see is a snapshot at a certain altitude, and that the maximum flow rate, which is your power capability, reduces. Sure. Now with that moving on as well you just mentioned the the electronic wastegate actuator so just to sort of paraphrase there more recently we've seen the lights of turbo smart come out with an aftermarket unit uh pros and cons with that over some of the factory units but as you said there you're using the the factory honda oe electronic wastegate actuator keeping the internal wastegate uh borg Warner offer offer this as do some of the other turbo manufacturers which has been unusual with the larger motorsport oriented turbos typically we go to an external wastegate so on that front was the decision to stick to the internal wastegate more around packaging complexity and and weight saving uh, or was there some other driver behind that oh yeah it was actually performance the same thing i guess was when i first came to turbo sizing and to pike speak i was always told you need a bigger turbine housing when you go to the altitude because you've got to wastegate more and it's not true you you need to downsize your turbine housing for up there because you're essentially making less exhaust energy and so so you basically got to get everything you can out of the exhaust gases in in into the turbine and and that's where something like a twin scroll really really helps and that's where the, the efr turbos have the smallest housing size with the twin scroll in and the twin scroll really makes a difference in how the, the boost comes on it's a much like a single scroll, it'll come on like a switch, whereas a twin scroll will come in steadily. So it's very, very drivable. At the time when we started that program, the turbo sort of stuff wasn't available. Um, it just started coming out and things like keeping the header simple as well. And the, the wastegate flow, I think, is actually quite... When you're not having to flow a lot of gas through the wastegate, the internal wastegate still do well. Um, if you've got a you know turbo sea level and all your sizing and you need to wastegate a lot yeah it extends all day long but on the mountain where most of the time your wastegate is shut and you're building boost and um i always say this to teams and they're like oh we're not making enough power we need to turn up the boost and all this i'm like go and see the percentage of time where you're at full throttle and meeting boost target and it's probably less than 10 percent. so drivability is is just key and getting everything you can out of the exhaust gases is key and that's actually where the internal stuff does really well I think that's something that's very easy to overlook with turbocharged engines in general is the way they do come on boost and particularly if you've got a reasonably small turbocharger that's meeting your power aims, uh, kind of as you alluded to there, it can come on boost so aggressively that it can make it easy to overcome traction as, as you ramp up. Now, obviously, we talked about the twin, the twin scroll and the internal wastegate helping you with that and rolling onto the boost a little bit more smoothly. Uh, in terms of the electronic wastegate, obviously, that opens up your strategy a little bit more than perhaps what is easily able to be done with a pneumatic uh, actuator. One of the problems I see with turbocharged cars is they, they are so good at making boost pressure. If you put them on a dyno and you run them you know, past the boost threshold, maybe six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 RPM for your application, and you go to wide open throttle, and it makes, let's say, 600 horsepower, and maybe it's you know, 30 pound of boost, just to chuck some numbers out there, doesn't matter. But then if you roll out of the throttle to 80% throttle, chances are it's probably still making 30 pound of boost 
maybe the the powers dropped from 600 to to 590 maybe 595 but almost you know no real difference so then you roll out of the throttle and typically you know if you're not instigating some control strategies around the boost pressure it, it's probably not till you get down to about 60 or maybe even 50% throttle that you're actually starting to see a, a significant drop away in power and torque and the problem with that is, as I see it at least, uh, it, it makes the modulation of the, the torque and the power for the driver, it's very non-linear. Like question here is, am I on the right track with this? Is this a problem from yeah. your perspective as a race yeah. driver and, and then are you using this electronic control strategy to to help make the torque versus driver's foot pedal position a little bit more linear? Yes, 100%. And I, I think the thing people don't realise is we don't actually use traction control on the car. And we do that because we have a, it's a simple strategy and you can do it with and without the electronic wastegate actuators. Um, I prefer those, but you can do it with pulse width modulation with the pneumatic control. But we essentially crack open the throttle plate to, it's just how you, how Motec controls throttle plates. So you, it's kind of like an S shaped curve, but we're like 80% open by about 40, 50% throttle pedal. And, and at the same point, we basically do, boost target per throttle pedal position so it's a very very linear pedal race day was rainy and foggy and my boost was still turned up to 100 percent because i could just modulate on the throttle pedal so you're basically most of the you know the torque demand is actually dictated by wastegate closing in the end that's, that's what we end up having yeah all right, you just mentioned motex so let, let's talk a little bit about the electronics package in in the car uh motec ecu what, what else have you got in there um, yes, it's Motec M150. We then have a, I think it's the, is it the PDM32 Motec again, and then a Motec C127 dash. That's um, what we have there. What else have we got? An M cell electronic cutout switch, the master, master relay. And uh, we've got some race grade stuff in there, TC8 for the, for the thermocouples, and also GPS and a race grade IMU as well. So all the good stuff. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of trick stuff in there. We built a new wiring harness for the car this year, and we thought it was going to be simple to start, and turned out it was a beast because we've got so many <laughs> devices on there. So yeah, all, all around kind of Motec and race grade, and that's just been fantastic for us. Was that new harness construction sort of driven by the the changes to sensors or electronics, or was it just time to freshen yeah. everything? It was it was a bit of both. The car's a bit of a mutton hybrid for a while as we did a patch harness for the original car's harness um, to put the M150 in and also all the turbo systems. So we had, as you know, it was kind of a patch harness that plugged into the old harness, but then also had some some other branches to go and plug plug into all the turbo stuff. And then as we as we got more science-y and adding more stuff on it, it just became a bit of a beast. And then the, the old harness was also starting to wear and I started to see some issues um, with, with some failure with, with the harness. Um, I think you were experienced firsthand the amount of engines we've had in and out of the car and that does that does put wear and tear on the harness um Definitely. so it was time and we had a pdm and the motec pdm go in the car as well so we, we could make everything go over to motec we got the da- motec dash as well from being kind of in the passenger seat it's a secondary dash and using the steering wheel dash to an open top wheel dash right in front of me as well so we just took the opportunity to make everything just so i think and that and that needed the whole new harness we re- re- repositioned a few components as well things like shift pump battery and all that good stuff to the passenger seat just to help with mass distribution and serviceability so it was time it was a lot of work it was one of those things where it doesn't actually net you 
performance, let's say, but it just makes it so much easier um, to work on the car and, and, and engineer the car. Plus, uh, yeah, reliability is is obviously Plus key, that. particularly yeah. when you only yeah. get one one crack at it. You mentioned no traction control, but you, you've sort of talked broadly about uh, anti lag. So I'm interested in that strategy. Um, obviously, anti lag it's a, it's a given with rally cars. Uh, I, I can see some potential advantage in terms of aiding boost response, particularly on some of those lower speed corners like the Ws we've talked about. Um, my, my take as a tuner on anti-lag, so I, I always had customers with road cars coming and asking for an anti-lag setup. And, and I, I try wherever possible to stay away from it because people don't understand how it beats up on engine components, uh, particularly the heat it generates in the exhaust manifold, the heat that the exhaust valves and the turbine wheel uh, are exposed to, and that needs to be managed. So that, that's why I, I very seldom would do that for a road application because it just causes more trouble than it's worth. So talk us through the the sort of mindset and, and the anti-lag setup for yours and, and how you're using it. Uh, the mindset was mainly what you have, <laughs> but for race cars as well. And, and that's why it came down to the, the Goldilocks idea of, of turbo sizing. First, we get your turbo sizing right. But you come to a point where you're trying to extract every ounce of performance of the car and you, and you do need it a bit. So um, we've always had EGTs uh, running on the car, and that's really helpful for diagnosing any any issues as well as controlling the anti-lag to make sure that the exhaust temps are staying below turbine limits and all this good stuff. So that's the first thing. Also, not asking for too much from the anti-lag. You know, we're, we're probably commanding about eight pounds of boost, and that's six to eight there. And then we we it's on a driver controlled switch. So having run with and without anti-lag this week, my qualifying time which was a record time, um, was without anti-lag at the bottom. The bottom of the mountain, you don't really need it. And when you have this really good throttle response and the ability to drive the turbo, you can, similar to you know, Ayrton Senna back in the day, who would do square stabs to get the turbo to spool up. I can just slowly roll into the throttle to keep the, to get the turbo going, and I can anticipate that very well. So you don't always need the anti-lag. It's only when you go up in altitude where you're, you need to keep a bit of energy in the system where it, that really matters. So... We'd be turning on the anti-lag around Glen Cove and then we'd be running that up through the Ws and maybe by the top section we'd maybe go one setting more aggressive. Fuel usage is another thing to consider. You use more fuel doing it and so that's weight you've got to take up you know, part way up the hill as well, which slows you down. So it's, it's all those things and compromises to consider. Yeah, definitely. I, I think those things as well on face value are very easy to overlook. Uh, j- just briefly, I'm interested to, to dive into cooling. And I mean, my own experience running uh, Ford Focus uh, with a GTR R35 engine and at up Pikes Peak, and that w- that was never built for Pikes Peak or comp- competition at altitude. And I mean, I think everyone kind of understands with a broad knowledge of of how engines work that when you go to Pikes Peak, the engine is going to make less power because the air is less dense, and and that's sort of a given. And I mean, it's obvious in hindsight, but what I had maybe not looked at or considered is that your cooling system doesn't perform as well either for the very same reason you don't have such dense air passing through the likes of your intercooler and your radiator uh interested to, to hear is the base wolf cooling package in terms of the radiator obviously it never had an intercooler is that sufficient or did that also need upgrading for pikes peak use um, that did need upgrading. Now, I would say to people, new- newcomers to the mountain, if you keep your car naturally aspirated, actually the cooling package is the right size because 
you lose the amount of power out of the car. So actually your your heat injection into the cooling system reduces the same amount as your uh, radiators are lose efficiency as well. So an NA car typically is okay. But then the turbo cars, you then you know wind in boost to, to make that power back. And that's where the headache comes. For us, the we ran the stock radiators for a couple of years and they worked pretty well. That car was way overcooled. Uh, it doesn't have any fans on it. If you were to idle an engine with the car slightly pointed into the wind, it would never warm up because it didn't have a thermostat. So it was, it was really good from factory and another reason why i picked the car was that it was their first go at it and their radiator intake and their side pods were just a little too big for 250 horsepower which is brilliant when you're making 650 because you can cool the car properly to the first iteration of the car we ran the intercooler hanging off the back of the car and that really helped with us for traction and actually aerodynamically worked really well but the mass was not was a bit too far back and there was some stability issues with that so in 2021, we went to uh, a whole new cooling package, essentially, for the car. So the left-hand pod is uh, just for the for the water circuit, and then the right-hand side is air-to-air intercooler and an oil cooler. We were able to move all that, you know, these big heat exchanges into the side pods because we work with PWR, and they just have really efficient cores. You go and look at the detail of how the core is. It's able to just transfer so much heat with that. So water temps actually we don't struggle with at all. We now run an electric water pump, and that's that's not running 100% even with anti-lag and all that good stuff. So that has some headroom. The intercooler oil stack is a little more marginal for us, um, and we were running a water spray system on it as well um, to try and help out with that, but that was in the right-hand side pod. Um, so, yeah, trick stuff, motorsport grade, pieces in there, and it's still a little marginal, but... You'll find, you know, as you wind in the boost, you make more heat, and that's that's just tough to cool. And you see some of these cars with monstrous coolers all over the car, but that's a huge performance de- deficit when you, with all the cooling in there. Like like all these things, you need just enough cooling. If you have too many coolers, you're going to be slow. It's too much weight. It's aerodynamic drag. Typically, coming with drag is you reduce downforce as well. So you you need to be on the marginal end of stuff with with these coolers. It's all about finding that perfect balance and getting it just right. Exactly. Yeah. What What's probably easy to overlook with the the Pikes Peak event is it is ultimately a, a team event, and obviously once once you leave the start line, uh, it, it's all about the driver. But but it's again, I, I kind of already talked about it briefly, but you, you lose sight of everything that is required to build up to the event, put the car together, and then run the car during the event with all those early starts that we've already discussed, and you're competing and beating everyone with the like, with the exception at this stage of of the likes of uh, Romain Dumas, which has the backing of Volkswagen. You know, I'm I'm guessing essentially an open checkbook approach to building that car and running it. I'm guessing you don't have an open checkbook. So let's talk about the the Cindy Club and what what is that team? Who's involved and what are their kind of roles? Yeah, this is, this is one of my favorite topics. Um, I'm very lucky that I have a lot of smart, talented friends who love cars and motorsport. And the, the Sandy Club came about as uh, a cancelled Pikes Peak program with Faraday. And they, we, were, we were due to go back in, in uh, 2018 with an electric single-seater that they, they had designed and they pulled the plug on, unfortunately. Um, but there was still a want and a desire to go and race. Um, we did try and do it electric to start with, and that was too hard. 
too expensive um, in the time given. So so we went to the, the internal combustion route. Now that the, the people we have, are like you know, some of the brightest minds in the automotive industry, uh, and it comes from things like powertrain controls, prototype builds, mechanical engineers, and you know, performance analysis people. So. You go and look at, you know, if, if I was to actually pay these guys, I couldn't afford them. Like this program couldn't pay for that. And I don't think, you know, don't, it'd, it'd be comparable, if not more than Volkswagen and what they had. But it is volunteer work, so I don't have them 100% of the time. It's, it's it's when they when they can make time for it. So that's that's the big difference. Luckily, we're all really passionate about this project and very driven with it. And, and I've been lucky that it's it's become more and more full time as, as we have started to bring money to the program so that I can I can focus more of the time on that as well as others as well. I mean, you look at Zach, Zach Perkins has been featured in some of your videos. He's an absolute artist in terms of wiring and, and welding as well. He's he is for a guy who doesn't weld, does some of the most beautiful welds without any practice. He can pop on a TIG welder and well, three, two, one, stainless with with no practice, and it's it's beautiful. So yeah, just very, very lucky and privileged. I, I have these people around me, and it, and is the reason why this program is so successful. What what I do often see is that sometimes having unlimited resources and unlimited budget can can actually hinder. And I know that that might sound like a a, a pretty uh, unusual statement, but. I've I've always found teams that I've worked with where the budgets have maybe been a little bit more limited or refined, it, it makes you think a lot harder about the solutions available and, and and making the best choice for a particular solution or problem that you've got. Do you think there are advantages over the likes of Volkswagen Motorsport that the Cindy Club you guys actually bring to the table for Pikes Peak? Um, I think compared to Volkswagen in particular, not so much that they were just given very different constraints of what that car needed to be. And they also had a very short time frame. I always think of this as, you know, like whatever you do, you're resource limited and resource is time, talent and money. They're the big three. So if you have an abundance of that, you'll typically maybe focus on the wrong things and maybe it's not only that you will spend money in the wrong place, you maybe try and bite off more than you can chew. And I, and I think this is most Pipes Peak teams are guilty of this. You could even say we were this year in picking too many projects at once to go and to go and do on the car. I think what's key to start with is, you know, knowing I, we've always been frugal. And so every dollar spent has to be right. You don't want to go and waste anything. And that just means we we do checks and balances in the engineering before we go and spend the money and i think that's key um and because we are engineers we have the tools to go and know is this going to make the car faster or not and it and it is always tough and there are a few there are a few leaps of faith you have to do and sometimes it doesn't work out with with these choices and if you have an, a bit of a leap of faith, a bit of a risk in one of the, the choice, plus it being very expensive, we probably wouldn't do it. And as we sort of had the option of doing some cylinder pressure measurement this year that some of your partners with that in the end that I ended up not wanting to do because of the time effort going into it was so it would be so great. It would come with some risk of reliability. And you go and look at the performance that would come out at the end of it wouldn't have been that much you're talking 20 30 horsepower and where we're still sort of refining maps in some areas that is you know a much lower hanging fruit of performance so you know i think with a load of cash we could spend very wisely um as a project and it's maybe the teams who do get a lot of money maybe don't spend that money on the talent and said spend it on parts they don't necessarily need so i think 
and you, you see this actually at Tesla and, and um, it's a good comparison between Tesla and Faraday at the time when those things were going. Tesla was always cash trapped. And so everyone had to be as innovative as possible and get every, every last ounce out of, of what they had. And I feel like we're the same as Faraday had a nice pot of money to get going to start with. So a lot was spent maybe on stuff that wasn't so important for their initial success. So that is a, a huge factor of it. And I think, you know, if you, if you leave people a little hungry, they're always a little more hungry, you know, to, to, to go and do things uh, as best as possible. So, yeah, I think it can ruin ruin a project. Um, but a Volkswagen's effort, I, I don't think the budget held them back. I think it was timing for them of what they could do was, was really the limit and also having to meet some corporate uh, desires in terms of it, A, being electric, and B, looking a certain way. And Yeah, I, I guess there's always a, a backstory of... of a set of compromises that are are put in place, particularly with those large corporates. I mean, I think the takeaway for me in terms of just purely the, the budget side of things is that sometimes uh, a budget that's too big can make you lazy and complacent. Uh, I, I think that's probably yeah. like how, how I'd summarise that. Uh, let's move on to to what you changed. So if we can maybe like briefly go over, you obviously had a, a very successful package that was, for all intents and purposes, doing a great job. What what did you decide to change for the the twenty twenty two running? Um, we, there was a huge amount of change on the car from nineteen to twenty one, and that was that cooling package and some proper CFD on the car. And with that kind of that big jump forward, you, you always have some things that didn't quite work out as exactly how you how you'd wanted. Um, and the big one was the air balance of the car. Uh, we could get the front end working if it was very low and within a very small range um that's no good for pike's peak so we wanted to basically make the car less aero sensitive to acceleration and ride height we know from the performance sensitivities as well of, of terms of pace on the car aero downforce is one of the places you go for the biggest gains you sometimes see i mean you see all the cars there with big wings on but as like a, a full system it doesn't always work so well and the other thing with aero downforce is you've got to drive it, it the car doesn't become faster with it you have to use that downforce you put more power on a car most people go to full throttle so you'll realize the performance gain there but things like better brakes and, and more downforce you've then also got to follow through with with driving the car faster so you're talking there about trusting in the aero and trusting that you're going to be able to go around that corner or brake later uh, compared to what you had with less or no downforce exactly exactly um, and then the other big thing, and it's the the most sensitive factor for runtime, is tire grip. The more grip you have, the faster you go. That's the thing you want. You know, downforce is essentially just giving you more tire grip, just in a speed sensitive way. And that's that's where we were able to bring on a new partner with Yokohama. That we got some very exotic tires to go and pop on the car, which is their their Super Formula tire. So that Super Formula is a series out in Japan. It's their premier open wheel series. Uh, it used to be called Formula Nippon. Yeah, a lot of F1 drivers came from that series, um, and it's still producing some some great people. And those those cars, I think, up until the rule change in F1 in 2017, when they went back to bigger downforce, those Super Formula cars were faster in the turns than F1. So oh, wow. these cars are there or thereabouts. Yeah, and for us, uh, it just so happened that the tire size they were is a bigger tire size, and we could just about squeeze it in the car. Everything is like barely fits. We had to cut away a lot of body work. We had to like modify some suspension arms. We had to, you know, the front tire diameter is, is quite a bit different. So we, you know, we had to make some spaces to get the steering off 
offset you know okay so it's it's not perfect if you do a clean sheet you wouldn't set the suspension like that but it works um, and the tire itself just responds so much better to the extra downforce and that just gave us a huge step up in performance there which which was great and then for the for the front end aerodynamic sensitivity we ended up actually cutting away the floor that was making the majority of the downforce previously so the best way to make a floor less aerodynamically sensitive is just to remove it but then we needed to bring that back so then we put a much bigger front wing on the front um front wings are quite nice because they they do work in ground effect but not as sensitive as a floor itself and it and it's not troubled by anything else you know in front of it in terms of weight wise so you can do the analysis pretty accurately on it um and so we just went for something that was a lot wider bigger main plane cord and slightly deeper and then more flaps as well and that brought the balance back um we did also have a tunnel floor was supposed to go on the car and that was going to give a big jump in downforce i think by itself like 30 40 percent without any increase in drag and that unfortunately we will talk about this the fire we had at the start of the month stopped us fitting that floor to the car so there was you know the error package wasn't complete this year but we you know we kind of got half of the way there in the car performance with half of the error package to the idr so that's actually really really good to see so a, a couple of things, and, and oh, just to be clear, I, I'm definitely not an aerodynamicist. I've just got a, a broad scratching the surface un- understanding. It's something I do want to learn more about. When you've said you've cut cut away that that front section of the floor, which was currently producing a, a lot of the downforce, in order to to reinstate that downforce using the wing, I, I understand that that reduces the ride height sensitivity of that downforce, which is which is great. Uh, generally, as I understand it, again I may be wrong here. Uh, the downforce that you can produce with an underbody, the underfloor, etc., generally comes with uh, less drag than getting that same level of downforce from a front wing. So, is the sort of a trade-off there? First of all, is is that correct, or am I off the track? And uh, if so, is that a trade-off? Yes, one hundred percent. That that is a trade-off. Um, but what you have at Pikes Peak is the physics of a race car works slightly differently because the air is so thin. So, drag isn't such a big deal let's say up there um you can there's this thing called the isochronal ratio that you see in Formula one and things like that that dictates what downforce level you you put on on your car for certain tracks like a high speed track like silverstone you need to not have any drag so to put a downforce on you need to be making like five times the downforce compared to drag for the car to stay the same speed so the isochronal ratio is basically saying it's like the ratio of downforce to drag for the car to say stay the same performance basically so it's uh anything that you make downforce with less drag than that you'll put on the car because you'll go faster if you're putting that downforce on and the, and it's draggy that car will go slower does that make sense yes i understand yep. yes so so someone like silverstone or um baku you're talking five or six so you need five times the amount of downforce as drag for the car to go faster someone like monaco you might be down at like two sure. um for pike for pike speaking our car it's half so you, so long as you're putting half the amount of downforce as drag on the car, stay the same speed. So it's really not drag sensitive at all. And actually putting drag on is helpful um, for brake temperatures because <laughs> you reduce your terminal velocity and the car will slow quicker. And then also for like a, you know, like a, a dragster with a parachute, if anything goes wrong, you can you can pull a chute and it slow you down. That drag kind of does the same on the mountain, especially on the rear wing. It will straighten the car up and. You can get out of it and, and get back get you out of control. Trouble. So, yeah, that's that's really useful. 
So you mentioned there you've developed that in CFD and, and assuming that it's not a case of garbage in, garbage out, you, you're going to have a, a pretty solid idea of how that should perform. So obviously that that's a great starting point. In, in terms of validating that in the real world though, particularly with the altitude aspect of Pikes Peak, I mean there's really nowhere to test other than, than Pikes Peak. Did you do any real world running with the car to validate things prior to getting to Pikes Peak? From memory, it looks like you finished building the car at Pikes Peak, so I'm not too sure how that worked out. Uh, yeah, we did a little bit of track test away from the mountain, and, and most of that, to be honest, is just to make sure the wings don't fall off. <laughs> That's like a a bit of a hard step, one. Step one some... in aerodynamics, make sure everything stays attached. Exactly, and you get you do get some weird effects with the you know I, think I call it aero acoustics, things like fluttering and stuff like that. That, that it's very hard to even simulate, let alone you know we. We do the 80-20 approach with CFD. It's it's not going to be the most accurate correlated, but we get trends of what's good and what's bad, and then we put it on the car. And this is one of the areas I'm very good at. It's just feel. You know, I can tell you where the error balance is, what's going on with the car, and with a bit of data in terms of shot pots and things like that. Okay, we're not getting absolute forces and drag numbers out, but we're getting an idea of where things are. And actually, we get from stop stopwatch at the end of the day. It's like, okay, we, we're expecting to be 10 seconds fast from this section, and we were eight seconds faster. So, and I can think of, well, I was not as fast in this turn or that turn. So it's about where we were. And and that seems to be the case. Everything we've popped on the car roughly works as expected. That's always, that's always satisfying. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really nice. And, and to go, go from that level of correlation, which is very light and, and I appreciate some could say it's slightly anecdotal in some places. We don't have full understanding of what's going on, but we also keep our aerodynamic devices very simple. You know, the front wing is is 2D profiles. There's, there's only the, the end plates that have some 3D into it. Same as the rear wing and the floor as well. It's, it's not crazy complicated stuff that's relying on vortices and things like that to switch on and off. These are just basic rudimentary shapes. And with that, then you, you can, you know, basic rudimentary balance. And what we get out, out at the end of it should be should be reasonable. And that's that's what we found. Right, well, let's move on. I think we've got a, a pretty good understanding of, of the car as it sits and, and the changes made. So let's actually move on to, to Pikes Peak 2022. And um, yeah, it, it, it's probably fair to say anything but plain sailing, correct? Yeah, it was a month. <laughs> it was hard work. Uh, <laughs> talk, us, yeah. talk us through the, uh, the, the highlights reel or the lowlights reel as uh, they may be. The low lights real. So we had a lot of stuff going, a lot of new stuff onto the car, which is to, you know, step forward, set us up for the, for the future. Um, actually, 2021, we had a lot of new stuff on the car. and We just got lucky, I think, that everything worked out about right. Um, but for this year, a lot of new stuff came on. There was, you know, a new wiring harness on the car. It still has some troubleshooting in terms of things like CAN networks, all the different devices, getting all that configured right. And, you know, there's always going to be a, a couple of mistakes you have to go and fix there. We had sort of an issue with... Um, some pin outputs we used to control the VTEC weren't right, so the, the cam control wasn't right for a while. All that stuff just holds you back. You know, Shakedown. Shakedown ended up extending a couple of days, and then uh, and also Shakedown was delayed you know, by a month or so. So we, we were running a month later than we wanted, and we, we had some issues there. And then on top of that, unfortunately, we had a failure, um, an oil line install issue that basically put as a line that was just because the packaging is tight. The line had to be quite straight. And it was installed so that it had a little bit too much tension on it. And after a while, that failed. That popped open and, and then unfortunately caused a fire. It was a mi- minor fire at the time, but then my fire extinguisher didn't 
work as it should. It was an in-date bottle. Everything was testing okay, but the extinguisher didn't go off. And so we ended up having the car burn for about a minute and going through quite a few wow. bits and pieces. Yeah. Um, There's video of that it. as well. And, and yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, a link to a YouTube video, which I think uh, anyone who wants more information should definitely go and watch. But you know, on Pikes Peak, it's a, it's a very long hill climb. And obviously they can't have marshals stationed you know, every 50 metres along the entire length of, of the hill climb. So w- were you fortunate enough and where you stopped there that you were close enough to a, to a fire marshal that obviously I've seen in the video, they ended up coming in and extinguishing the fire? Yeah, really lucky. Really lucky we were around some of the radio as well to call them up. Um, I probably break down more often than most on the mountain. And that's as we, you know, we're always developing stuff on the car and, um, with that comes some things that work and do and don't work. And so I, I have my fair share of stoppages. And for some reason, I always end up stopping at the same place where this chap called Joel, who's a photographer, is. And he's well integrated with the, the safety crew and has a radio. So he was able to call and help immediately. And then they turned up, you know, shortly thereafter. I mean, you've seen previously things like, I think, Ken Block that burned down the Ford Escort in a rally stage where, you know, safety is much further spread out than what Pikes Peak is. Pikes Peak safety is, is really good in that aspect that there's help isn't too far away each time. What what was the sort of damage analysis on that? Because usually a, a fire that burns for a minute is going to be borderline pretty catastrophic with a, a, a huge amount of damage. Yeah, we were lucky in that um, the oil that caught fire was near the top of the car. So the fire itself was on top of the exhaust manifold, basically. So we burned through some wires, the coils, um, a few coolant lines and things like that, and then the bodywork as well. Bodywork took a real big uh, toasting to it. So something like that, when you have a fire like that, you have to strip the coal the way back, you have to clean it. It makes a huge mess. You have to go and find We have to go and find the issue where the, you know, what burst, what broke, and, and confirm that as always takes time. And, and because that's the start of, of race month, the whole team wasn't out. It was me and, and Juan, just one other guy actually working on the car and sorting it out. So that took days. You know, with, with a team of 12, that, that could have been fixed and sorted out in, in a day. But for the two of us, that took five. So that, that obviously cuts short your testing as well, which then impacts on, yep. on your experience and knowledge with the car and, and the mountain. Exactly. Just a back foot each time and then you've got to go and almost do bring up again and shake down to check everything all you've changed is okay you know so so you're, you're back to square one with that it is it, it, a huge setback all right so we get past that the car's basically back good as new and from from the outset if you don't look too close essentially you'd, you'd never know so how did testing go from from there plain sailing now yeah no it wasn't again we had the day after that, we had a good day on the lower section and we could really start to learn the Yokohamas on the mountain, which was, you know, something that was nuanced and, and took a lot of understanding there. So, so we, we had a couple of good days on the mountain to understand that. Um, but then we also had some issues around um, sensors. The, the car is, the engine's rigidly mounted to the car and is semi-structural. There's a lot of vibration going through the car, a lot of low going through the car. So we stuff becomes stuff that isn't wear items becomes wear items um and we're slowly discovering that you know and we really need to start lifing more components and sensors and things like that so something as a small team that you don't really have that luxury of time to spend on that especially when that doesn't gain your performance just gains your reliability on an event you can get a little lucky with let's say um so we had an oil pressure sensor that was just starting to read a little low now and then and would throw up warnings and issues and when you're running on little sleep and 
and because uh, we're such a competitive program now, and we, you know, if everything goes right, we're, we're race winning. You don't want to risk blowing up an engine or having an issue, so we always err on the side of caution, and that, that's what we do. We lost a day to that oil pressure sensor. We had um, then a cam position sensor go again. It was the wiring that was fire adjacent, so maybe questionable whether the fire actually affected that, and that, that stopped us another day. And it was a really weird failure. We had it on the Sunday previous to start with, and the car just conked out. Didn't work. All the dash stuff was on, but couldn't run the car. Tried cycling it, turning it on and off. Wouldn't fire up, so rolled out to somewhere safe. Ten minutes later, just tried again. The car fired up, drove back down, and then ran the rest of the day fine. And we were like, Always reassuring. Yeah. So we knew we had that gremlin in there. We, we, it was really hard. to We couldn't find it in the data, basically. Following week, exactly same place, situation, same thing happened. And we were luckily then able to, we were on the mound to get more people around us. We were able to go and diagnose and find that issue, that sensor. We were you know, 90% sure of it and we changed it and it was good. The other, the other thing I'll, I'll mention there as well that sort of goes hand in hand with this is is that due to that nature of, of the early starts, you've got a team that's running on, on very little sleep and then when you add in having to essentially rebuild half of the car due to the fire, you know, it, it's amazing how a lack of sleep, particularly as it builds up over a week or so, starts to affect your cognitive ability and, and what sometimes is is a simple thing to, to spot and, and, and solve just isn't that obvious. Yeah, it's... This is a, a huge problem when, when well-established teams who racing in, you know, typical road racing stuff come to Pikes Peak, their experience are a good team. They've won and it shouldn't be too hard. And they come to the mountain and they just have their ass kicked. And it is an endurance event, but it's not like a car running around for 24 hours. It's like a, a physical one and a mental one for each and every person on the team. The altitude just compounds that because it just exhausts you. And the other thing I find when, same for me as anyone, when you're working on cars, you get tired, you start slowing down, you become less efficient. You'll take two or three times the amount of time to go and do a job than if you were fresh and ready to go and do it. So just looking after people and like telling them to go to bed and stop, I think is a, is a big part of teamwork there. And giving yourself enough time to go and work on the car and also being realistic in the amount of work you can get done in a day. It's just really, really important there. You've got to pick your battles and you've got to rest as much as you can. It's You're still not sleeping that much, but you know that little bit of sleep is just oh so important. Definitely. All right, well, fast forwarding through to qualifying. And again, qualifying is a little unusual with Pikes Peak. It's run on, on that lower section of the mountain. So you've got the three groups practicing on the three sections of the mountain. So basically the three groups qualify on, on different days. And you did manage to get it all together and iron out all the bugs on, on the qualifying day in the end, didn't you? How did, how did that all go? And you happy with everything? Uh, the qualifying was eventful. Um, we, we had, this is like one, one area on the car, we keep blowing a boost tube and it was something that we know how to fix, but we just weren't able to go and do it properly, you know, fix properly. We were able to countermeasure with some different clamps, but, um, you end up blowing a boost tube off uh, there and on the first run. First run is just so important for qualifying, especially for us. You know, if we're fast, we're way faster than everyone else. So we need that banker run in and then we can go and push and we can really go for time. And so we, we ended up running up the mountain with no boost at all. And I think that probably works out to be like 150 horsepower. Top speed of the car, I believe, was 72 mile an hour there. And it was a bit like driving a rental car, a rental cart <laughs> up the mountain. 
but the time we set was good enough for midfield was like a four minute 20. And that just shows you again, people come to play speed power obsessed. And with a car that VMAX is 70, we could, we would have qualified, I think like third or fourth and unlimited with that. So, um, no, it's definitely not everything, not everything, but from there, that just puts on the back foot. I was trying to make up for it in the next run and, and push too hard on the, on the bottom. And again, I was still learning the car. Like I'd had two competitive days in the car on the mountain previously. And some of the, features of our spring package makes it you have to be a bit patient from weight transferring on the nose and heavy braking to then throttle and turning and i was just asking for a little too much and spun the car we were actually up to that point i got the onboard up to that spin we we're on pace with the idr on that bottom bit of the mountain that's where we we're very strong and the idr doesn't pull out its advantage to that next section but just showing you where we were there at that time spun the car 180 had to kind of austin powers reverse it around to point in the right direction and get going again and actually that time we set on that run even with that spin was still pole position at the time in class and still would be <laughs> and i think was good enough for third overall so again the the pace in, in us and the car is is pretty good so we can get away with some of these mistakes that was, was one of my mistakes i don't i try and avoid doing that um and that was the I should have done it on the last run. I should have done my last run second, and then that run last because the us getting a third run was was not a guarantee. You basically got a you wait until eight thirty, and nobody more no more people can go up after eight thirty. And we were leaving the line at eight twenty eight as it went through <laughs> the running. So cutting it fine, skin of our teeth, yeah. And I I just brought it back a bit. I didn't run anti lag on the car. We ended up running some groove tires because we weren't able to we had to turn the car around really really quickly and we had to get in line to make sure we got that start time so the tire warmers weren't on so we we're running with slightly cooler tires so we could run some they call them the groovy boys that, that just created a bit more heat in, in in the rubber itself to work at those lower lower starting temperatures which worked out and and i put down a good time i think it ended up being like a, a 324 and was about two seconds faster than Sebastian Loeb ever did in qualifying. So, so on a compromise run, you're still two seconds faster than Loeb, fastest ever qualifying time for an internal combustion engine. So, you know, with with potentially or obviously more up your sleeve, that that's not a bad place to to start. And I'll, I'll just sort of clarify as well because people might be thinking, well, what is the relevance of a qualifying time? at Pikes Peak when you're not racing off a grid with other cars. And I mean, obviously, first of all, there's the bragging rights of, of being fastest. It's a pretty good place to set your mind, get your mindset right for, for race day. But more importantly, and I mean, I've only been there two times, but both both years I went, uh, we had ex- exactly the same experience. Uh, 2022 I'll, I'll, we'll get to is it was a little bit different but generally that mountains weather patterns are, are very bizarre and the two years I went we sort of started the day with dry tra- the dry track and and everything was good the weather was clear and then sort of by mid-morning or midday uh, a weather system had come through and I think the second year I went they actually could only run the last half of the field to to um, Glen Cove I think from memory or something like that it was just you know snow and, and sleet at the top so you know you want to get your, your run in as, as soon as possible and that qualifying time sets your starting position so Moving moving on to race day, I just sort of alluded to, to the weather. Obviously, it, it's not a year that kind of went down in the history books for the right reasons. Um, conditions less than ideal, talk us through it. Yeah, so we had basically a cold front come through just over the 
extremities of of race day and the day before and after. It was forecast for like six inches of snow at the top and it looked really bad. It looked something similar that was going to happen the year before where it was just ice at the top prevented that. But luckily, A, they had the, the road crews working around the clock and B, there just wasn't so much snow up there so they were able to keep the road clear. But the big problem was the fog stayed and it was just fog all the way up the mountain. And with that, the, the mountain typically, if it's, if it's clear, precipitation moisture on the road will just evaporate very very quickly even if it's cold even if it's freezing you'll see steam coming off the road surface and it goes very quick because of the because the ambient pressure um but with the fog in it just made everything wet and kept it wet so we were running the way they do the run order you you know you don't want to be first on the road as as fastest runners they put a couple of the slower classes in typically people who are not in contention for the overall um first to kind of clean the road get everything sorted out and and then i ran and it was still wet 80 percent of the surface and one, you know, a small section which was not in the cloud was dry, but still patchy wet, so you couldn't push flat out. And and then by the W, so the midsection, the top, the heavy fog was there, and it was it was really hard to deal with. And you're talking, you know, open top car. I think that makes it a little harder because everything's going onto your visor, and then she's dense patches of fog that was, you know, I couldn't, I could barely see my dash. I couldn't see which gear I was in. I think one the cog cut ended up doing it second. I thought it was in third, but I couldn't see the number on the dash. Again, obviously, we don't have the benefit of of uh, visuals here, but um, for those who want to check out just how bad it was, a, a really great video that I just watched yesterday that you posted on your Instagram uh, from Superfast Matt on his YouTube channel, which kind of documents your your experience at the mountain as well. But that onboard from from race day, I mean. It's some next level, so we'll, we'll put a link to that video for people who want to actually see what it what it was all about. I mean, I have to ask: with the conditions there, does it become more a case of um, who has the largest balls to to drive through that fog and hope that they remember what the the combination of corners coming up is? Uh, maybe I think it's, it's a couple of things like the, the fog will flow in and out. And then also depending on the car setup, what you have, how clean your screen is, you can maybe see more or less. That makes a difference. Familiarity with the mountain, being able to read the road from landmarks. Um, and then the confidence in the car that you can do an emergency move, maneuver, something like that. You saw David Donner second overall in a pretty much stock 911S. Um, he had the benefit of tires, you know, really good groove tires and that work at low conditions. You know, race wets are not designed to work at zero degrees C. So he, so he had the rubber there and the car soft and compliant and has all the safety systems and it has ABS, stability control, all that. So, if, you know, if he was somewhere unexpected, he could just jump on the brakes, pitch the thing in and he was more likely to do all right with it when you've got a stiff, stiff aero race car that's doing 30 mile an hour. And in freezing conditions and some ice around it, it doesn't do well when you have to do some emergency avoidance or something like that. So it is a little bit also around the car. Um, and then, yeah, there is, there is also an element of how much you want to risk it on the top or how confident you are. I kind of knew I was really fast on the other sections, so I didn't need to put in the level of risk on the top to do it. But I was pushing as hard as I could, I think. If I'd have risked more, there might have been like two or three more seconds, and then that was probably 50 50 if I made it to the top. So, we're not talking much difference there. Obviously, the, the risk reward 
calculation you did worked out because you, you did win by by a reasonable margin as well from from what I remember seeing. Is is it sort of a case of what could have been though? Because obviously winning the event is ticking that off the list. It's one of the things you wanted, but I'm assuming really what you were aiming for was uh, a, a faster time and maybe an outright title. Yeah, I think. In the end, for me, it wasn't the end of the world because we didn't because we had the setbacks at the start of the month and we weren't bringing everything we had this year. Um, it, it wasn't that feeling of like, oh, we could have almost done it on the hundreds. That would have been amazing. I think in the end, we would have you know, been there or thereabouts breaking the internal combustion record, um, but that's still not the, the outright mountain record. So um, kind of... A, I, I come to terms with it before it happened and also very excited to race the mountain in adverse conditions. I also think that's kind of cool and is a talking point for that for the hundredth. Um ripping up that mountain when it's tricky, I think as a driver is you know, it's kind of nice to say you've done that and you can you can most of the other race cars were a lot slower in the wet, let's say, than the road cars, but our, our stuff was still very, very competitive. Um so that's nice to have that aspect of it. Um you can't get into the what could have been mindset at Pikes Peak. The, the mountain decides when you're going to run. I'm still, I, you know, five years I've run the race and I still haven't made it to the top without weather or a car issue. So I've never set a representative full length time, three times king of the mountain. And my finishing times don't mean anything to me still. Um, there's, there's always been something left on the table. There's, there's always something there. And, and that's just the nature of the race. And also why it's so impressive for Romain and Loeb to just turn up one year and set those times. So hats off to those guys to do it in one. You know, it's, it's taken us a little bit to, to get to that point. And I think that's, again, it just shows you the difference between a, you know, a, a small, you know, a smaller program and the big program that you can spend the money and have a higher percentage um, chance of success with that. Um, obviously money doesn't buy you weather, but everything else at least can, can can put you in a much more certain position to succeed absolutely all right well i think we'll move towards wrapping this up and and the first of the we've got three more questions we ask every guest and the first of those sort of really leads into you know maybe what's going to happen for next year so that question is what what's next and in the future for you i'm assuming unfinished business back next year with some further changes what what have you got planned yeah i think so um it's always this sort of delicate balance of do we just continue with the, the small the small leaps or do we go for the big leaps in improving the program? But we will be back at Pikes Peak and I will be there with something that will challenge for the Hill record. Um, the McMurtry fan car did something very impressive at Goodwood. The fan car is actually a concept I've been looking at for a while now as well. So with that, that th- you know, the possibility of that car coming there, um, do, we, do we need to look for another step forward in that kind of technology or focus on what we're doing and continue with that? So something I've got to think about and yeah, around things like chassis, powertrain, we're very much at the limit of what we've got right now. So do we need to go and make a step to go and, you know, like I, I think we can get everything so it will just about scrape us up eight-minute run, but everything's going to be perfect. So sometimes it's better to guarantee a success by making a seven-and-a-half-minute car and driving that slowly. <laughs> so yeah we'll see that I, I guess the the danger is always in making a really significant large step forward or what should be a large step forward and, and then finding that it produces a whole bunch of unforeseen side effects that you need then need to kind of work your way through as well so again with limited testing and, and a, 
availability, the mountain resources, that, that's, that's always something I guess you have to have in the back of your mind, correct? I think so, yeah. I think that's why we'd sort of parallel path it. So we'd keep, you know, we've got the upgrade package for the wolf and right now and get that sort of dialed and where that needs to be anyway. And then we could maybe look at doing a new car on top of that. So that's how we'd get rid of that risk, maybe. Okay. Moving on, the next question. And I mean, your career is, is fairly unique in terms of an automotive engineer and a race driver so I'm not quite sure how to angle this specifically or how you want to angle your answer but basically if if you had some advice that you could give to a younger version of yourself to maybe fast track and get you where you've got to in your career what would that advice be so you can angle this in terms of race driving automotive engineering yeah. or perhaps both whatever you whatever you prefer I, th- I think for from the racing side of things is really pay attention to how you present yourself um, something that I was always focused on just being fast and less so on, you know, presentation and things like that. And that, that does make a big difference. At the end of the day, motorsport is professional, the level we're at and your, your marketing um, products and companies. And so it's very important how you present yourself. So, and also social media of, of, of having you know, people following your story and properly telling your story. You know, I have a great story and I'm, I'm not great at telling it. And so all those things are important to go and succeed in that world because that's, you know, it is an entertainment and marketing world. That's what motorsport is. So definitely presented myself okay, but not as well as I could. And, you know, I, as an engineer, I tend towards making my car faster um, with my brain rather than actually presenting myself better and getting better partners on board and then a bit more budget to go and increase my performance. It's both, way, both valid ways of going and doing it. So I think I'd say that to myself. Um, I think the other thing would be is is like, be patient and keep chipping away and trust in the process. I think this stuff takes time. It takes a lot of time, effort, work, blood, sweat, tears. Um, but if you keep succeeding, keep doing a good job and also enjoy what you're doing, then then the success will come. Yeah, I, and I think that last point you made there, uh, if you enjoy what you're doing, success will come. I mean, it, it is it is really important to to continue doing something you're enjoying doing so if it, it sort of gets to a point where you know, it's becoming a chore or you're not enjoying it anymore I think that's, that's often a sign to maybe take a step back and, and reassess your direction or, or, or what's going on and in terms of the, the race driving thing I, I think the media side of things is really really important and so often overlooked you know you, you do need to be able to sell yourself to to uh, your sponsors and in turn if you're an ambassador for that sponsor or their product uh, that they want a, a likable sort of well-spoken person to be the face of their brand so yeah really really important advice there uh, last question for today Robin if people want to follow you and see what you're up to maybe follow your journey for the 2023 Pikes Peak where are they best to do so um, we've got uh, first of all the Sandy Club uh, which is uh, S-E-N-D-Y the Sandy Club and that's Instagram and YouTube actually the best place to follow that and then me and myself personally is robin.shoot which is S-H-U-T-E and that's on Instagram it's probably the best place you can go Okay, perfect. We'll, um, as usual, put a link to those accounts in the show notes as well, make it really easy for people to find those. 
Look, uh, great chat there, Robin. Do appreciate your time and it is great to get some insight. I must admit this year I, I was uh, a little bit jealous, a bit of FOMO there, not uh, not being able to be on the mountain, although uh, I did enjoy not having to get up at uh, three in the morning as well. So we'll, we'll leave that to you guys. Maybe the HPA crew might make it across next year and uh, we'll pray for some fine weather and see what the car can actually do given a clean run. I'd love that. Yeah. Missed you guys. It'd be great to have you back on the mountain. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Robin Shoot, we'd love it if you could drop us a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that helps us in turn to continue to get bigger and better guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt anywhere in the world. This is a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to SRS13 who said some real interesting tidbits of info here. Love being able to listen to these in the car when I don't have time to sit down and watch the videos. Thanks for your feedback there. Great to hear that the podcast is hitting the mark. Get in touch with your size and shipping details and we'll fire off a fresh tea straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get seven. $25 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.